think sometimes churches have been guilty of putting on these blinders and the only thing they're pursuing is being right. And the, the, the ironic thing about that is the moment they start doing that, they're wrong. This is the Heath in Pursuit podcast with Heath Hollandsby. Each week we'll have a conversation with various folks who are actively engaged in the pursuit of truth. This is a show where anything can be discussed, and probably will. A podcast for the seekers, the dreamers, the restless, the hurt, and the broken. This is a podcast for you. Welcome to Heath in Pursuit. Thank you, James, and welcome to another edition of Heath in Pursuit. I'm Heath Hansby, the host of this wonderful show, or what I believe to be a wonderful show. Today we're talking with author Brian Jennings. So Brian is one of my favorite guys out there. He wrote uh, a book that has actually changed my life um, a couple years ago called Dancing in No Man's Land, and the subtitle is Moving with Peace and Truth in a Hostile World. And I thought, I'm on Twitter. This world sucks sometimes, and so I want to figure out how to navigate this in a way that kind of reflects what uh, I say I believe, and how do I have conversations with people I disagree with in a way that is life-giving and brings people together and finds unity versus uh, just throwing crap at one another, hoping something sticks and writing people off and blocking each other on social media. And so I thought he wrote a book on it and how to dance in no man's land. And it would be really helpful to have him share some of his thoughts as far as how do we, how do we deal with other people in a way that is uh, countercultural, in a way that's not angry and not divisive. So uh, that's the purpose of today's show. So uh, Brian, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, he's so good to be with you. Yeah, man, we had you on the other podcast, and then I had you come out and speak to a course that I was leading for, for a university here in in, uh, in Kansas, and people loved it. And I just, you know, I'm a big fan of your work, and your book, Dancing No Man's Land, has been so helpful in figuring out how to try to be a righteous person in between conversations that often miss the mark or um, are so highly combustible from the, from the beginning. It's like you're walking into a... Uh, a room of gunpowder every time I open up Twitter with a with a with a match, depending <laughs> on what my mood is, and it could either explode or or it could uh, detonate quickly. But your book was really helpful uh, in providing a clarity to how to discuss with people that are a little bit different than you and how to enter into conversation. And so your book is called "Dancing in No Man's Land: Moving with Peace and Truth in a Hostile World," uh, and it's incredible. And I don't think it's actually more pertinent. I mean, every day it feels like this isn't this is going to be an evergreen book. You're going to constantly have have stuff you can pull from it. And I remember as I was going through the book, I was highlighting every page, and it looks like it, it's gone through a bit of a war of my heart anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm curious, like, you know, the premise would be that we have a fractured world that desperately needs to think um, a different way. We need people who speak gently and value truth and think clearly and how to speak truth and peace in the midst of kind of this war-like uh, conversational tone. And so I'm curious if you wouldn't mind giving us a background as to why you wrote this book and what your hope was in accomplishing it, and then kind of unpacking this idea of what no man's land is and why you thought it would be helpful to use that as your analogy. I'm just curious if you can kind of give us some insight onto that. I wasn't aiming to really write anything. And in the span of about 10 days, really the Lord just pressed on me heavily. There was kind of three things that happened at once. And uh, one was uh, we were going through, I think, phase one or two of the debate about Obamacare and 
I had good Christian friends telling me that if I supported it, I was terrible mm. and I hated the U.S. And I had good Christian friends telling me if if I rejected it, then I was terrible and I hated the poor. Oh, and I remember just feeling so bewildered that I was like, well, according to half of my friends, I'm going to be a terrible, hateful person. <laughs> and so at the, at the same time, I was just kind of reading a biography about World War I. And in some ways, what a stupid war that was, how it started and how the whole world just kind of felt like it was all bubbling towards something terrible. And that's certainly what they got. Hmm. But this, this idea of trench warfare... Uh, bunker warfare emerged where the the German and the French troops, you know, literally dug into the ground and they ended up, you know, with all of these trenches and it stalemated the war because nobody could move forward. If you stuck your head over the top, you know, came out from behind a bunker, you got, you were killed. And that land in between was called no man's land and because nobody wanted to be there. You would not yeah. often survive if you were there. So I remember thinking that that metaphor seemed to be playing out in my life just in different ways of one group saying that you're going to get shot for this and another group saying you're going to get shot for that. And I began thinking, well, what would it look like to live in no man's land? Can anybody survive there? And I, I just happened to be at the same time devotionally reading through the book of Daniel. And it's such an incredible book. And chapter two, Daniel finds out that he and all of the, the wise men of Babylon are told, hey, you're all going to get killed. Hmm. And, you know, there's no good reason for them getting killed. They're just going to get killed because Nebuchadnezzar was mad. Hmm. So he had sent out Arioch, kind of his hitman, to, to give them this bad news. Right. And thinking of all the things that we would do in that moment, and Daniel does none of them. And chapter 2, verse 14 says that Daniel responded with wisdom and tact. Hmm. And I, when I read that verse, it was one of those times where you just have to set your Bible down and be like, whoa, what just happened here? Because hmm. I don't see any wisdom and tact in our culture, hardly ever. Yeah, I see people on one side or the other. So all of those three things kind of came together, and I just began thinking about what if God is calling us to live in this this metaphor called no man's land where we hold tight and precious to this thing called truth, uh, certainly the ultimate truth in God, but also just in our daily lives of trying to figure out what's the truth in this situation. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, we cling towards a desire to be at peace with our fellow man. And we refuse to just reject people and hate people because they disagree with us. Well, what would it look like if we if we if we clung to both of those things at the same time? And I think it would look like being in no man's land. And I make the case in the point that or in the book that if you if you hang on long enough and you begin to realize there's some other people there with you, and the dream is that at some point you can go from feeling like you're always dodging bullets from both sides, yeah, to where you feel like you're in a bit of a dance. But I'll be honest with you, a lot of times it still feels like you're dodging bullets, and I have to be reminded of the joy of being where Jesus wants us to be. So that's a bit of the where the metaphor came from. You know, I love it because even before we started recording today, I was telling you that um, your book provides such a healthy narrative and, and suggestions on how to do this well. And 
it's like I constantly feel guilty that I, I really want to be like Jesus and I want to take your suggestions, but it's amazing what is revealed in my heart when I see how quick I feel like I need to enter into a conversation, not with, I mean, I might have wisdom and no tact, or I might have great tact and no wisdom. And so it is a constant reminder to kind of submit your heart and your posture to, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, to actually submit your posture to something that that lines up in the way that he would direct us to live. And I find just how easily it is for me not to yeah, I just I just go in ready for a fight for some reason, <laughs> you know. It's it's really hard to be that per it's it's a, a I guess what I'm ultimately saying is it's a lot easier said than done, right? <laughs> because all it takes is to oh, see man. a little bit of outrage and then you're like, "All right, time to fight." <laughs> yeah, yeah, every day uh we certainly can feel this way whether it be in our home with our family or with friends. Certainly being online in the social media age magnifies all of that. Yeah. Because then you don't even have to see someone's face. But uh, yeah, I, I struggle with it too. If anything, the metaphor helps me at least get my bearings a little bit. Hmm. And I'm, I'm relieved that I'm not ultimately responsible for whether somebody accepts truth. And I'm also not responsible for whether they are at peace with me. Hmm. What I am responsible to do is to pursue God's truth and to pursue the truth in any certain situation. And I'm also responsible to pursue peace with people. Yeah. And the, the Bible makes that so clear that I think sometimes we say, well, I'm pursuing truth, so I'll just you know, take it or leave it, whatever it does. I don't care. I don't care if I make you mad. Yep. And that kind of attitude is just not who Jesus is and not what we are taught to be. So it's this idea of clinging to both. But I, what I struggle with is letting go, hmm. and I need that reminder to let go that it's not my responsibility uh, to make them at peace with me. It's just my responsibility to do everything I can to help them be at peace with me. You know, that's a, it's a good distinction, because I was actually having a conversation on Twitter the other day with somebody, and it, was, it wasn't heated, but we were on very different sides of the, um, of the coin as far as what we believe uh, the ways of Jesus would look like in interpreting a situation. And their tact was very much like, hey, I'm going to scream truth, and and I don't need to to worry about the way it comes out, because it's it's in my loving you that you, they kind of use that argument of like, you know, your kid runs out in front of a car, you scream at him to get out of the road. That's That's out of love. And that's how we should be with sinners as well. Mm-hmm. We should We should yell at them because we're standing on truth, and and it's my love for them that causes me to be such a jerk to them or whatever. Have you seen that sort of? Mm. Have you seen that sort of rhetoric yeah. before? Yeah, big time. It, and I I think the folks who do that, and I think me when I've done that, actually had good motives mm-hmm. oftentimes, but we ended up being counterproductive to the work of the gospel and to having any kind of influence in that person's life yeah. uh, because we, we so alienated them. And it's kind of like, you know, screaming at your spouse uh, to, uh, <laughs> to do a better job at washing the dishes isn't going to result in the dishes being washed better, probably. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You know, it's going to, you know, it's going to just lead to all kinds of, you know, more dysfunction. Hmm. And so, 
it's it's not cool to beat people up with truth and just to say, you know, take it or leave it. I don't care, or I just need to get this off my chest. Uh, or when they say, I'm sorry, but you know, then whatever comes, you know, is going to be terrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, all those things just are really counterproductive uh, for any of that. Well, and I and I almost wonder too if um, I recently read a book by Conrad Gempfe uh, called Jesus Asked, and the whole premise was. Jesus was so kind of subversive in the way he answered a lot of questions, even the ones that you would think would be a big deal. Like, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And it's like, well, what would I do? Like, what makes you call me good? There was never, he was really good at (laughs) at asking really, really helpful questions. And I wonder if that might be a posture to take on too, is, is going like, let me seek understanding before I just jump in and engage this. Like, what's causing you to say this? Have you considered this? What about this? What would this mean if this happened? You know what I mean? So I wonder if questions is kind of a dismantling agent in this conversation. It's like, ask better questions. Yeah. Yeah. I, I list out kind of four ways that people can pursue wisdom intact at the same time. And we see it in the life of Daniel. Yeah. Let's talk but about those. Daniel starts asking questions. Yeah. So the, yeah, that's the very first one is he asks questions. And we see that all through Jesus' life. They ask him a question and he asks him a question back. Yeah. And it's not, it, I don't think he, he's always doing that just to be frustrating. He's really doing it to help people see there might be something deeper going on here than just your question. Hmm. And a lot of the questions Jesus, you know, that he was asked were bunker type of questions of, you know, do, uh, should we pay taxes or not was the ultimate bunker question. Because if he answered yes, he made enemies with half the people. Yeah. If he answered no, he made enemies with half the people. Both sides had theological arguments uh, ready to go. Hmm. And so, you know, Jesus says, hey, you know, whose who's picture is on this coin? He asked the question back. And then, of course, he ends up saying, you know, we'll give back to Caesar what is Caesar, give to God what is God's. And I think both sides are left scratching their head <laughs> and thinking about, oh, there's something deeper to this question here. And it's maybe not, it's not just a simple one. And I think we always want simplicity in every answer. Yeah. And there's not a lot of life that's all that simple in the real life questions. So I love that, uh, you know, Jesus models that for us. Daniel not uh, uh, asked the questions. The, the four things are that, that Daniel asked questions. He showed restraint, you know, as opposed to, you know, trying to kill Arioch or having a coup or, you know, garnering the masses to be on his side or whatever. Sure. But he showed restraint and he prayed and he asked people to pray with him. And I think that's significant. Hmm. Um, And then he obeyed, you know, however God led him. And of course he ends up, you know, God uses him to not only save his own life, but to save the lives of many others in that moment. But Daniel was going to be obedient, even if it cost him his own life. Yeah. He was going to be obedient. And so the asking questions, the showing restraint, praying, obeying, I try to work through those things. And one, I guess, practical way I've tried to do that is to not respond immediately to news stories hmm. because I get myself in a lot of trouble when I do. Um, I think there's times to respond and I feel the pressure from victims when people don't respond quickly to an injustice. Sure. And I guess I try to balance that with, um, I don't need to be cutting edge. Part of the reason, uh, you know, so many of our news sources have not done well for us is because it's all a race to see who can report first. Sure. 
I don't really want to join that fray. And so I want to let things meander in my mind for a little bit. I want to, you know, think about them and show that restraint because uh, my instinct is to respond immediately with some hot take sure. that's going to win my argument. <laughs> Well, and we see that quite a bit, right? Like in the news and stuff is you got the breaking news and about 20 minutes later, it's a wait, hang on, the facts are changing. We weren't so certain on this or this just came up. This was not correct what we reported earlier. And you got people just re- reacting in real time to whatever the late breaking thing, even, even things like with Yelp, you walk out of a movie theater and before you even get out of the theater, they're asking like, what do you think of the movie? Would you rate it? Would you give it stars? What would, what were your highs? Like we don't, allow a really healthy amount of time for us to actually stop and, and assess the situation before we respond because we do live in this world that is quick fire, quick response, quick action. And it feels like a, at some point these hot takes because whatever's big in the news today, two weeks from now, is going to be forgotten completely, right? For the most part. Right. And so um, yeah. do you have like a certain practice that you go like, I try to give everything 48 hours. I, I don't want to systematize it too much, but just kind of what is, how do you, how do you balance that in your own life? Yeah, I, I don't have, you know, any kind of a written out system. I'll just tell you kind of a practical way that this played out recently for me okay. is, you know, we're right now, um, the big news and rightfully so is the shooting of Ahmad Arbery. Yep. And, uh, most Americans only know about this, you know, over the last 48 hours, because that's, you know, when the, um, the video was released publicly and then it kind of caught social media wind, yep. but it's been a story for a while. It's been a story that I've been, I haven't been following it for two months. Um, like some have, but I've been following it for a few weeks hmm. and I, as I was reading, I thought this is the type of issue that I would write about and, or that I would have a voice about because I, I want the folks who are minorities in our community and beyond to know that people are noticing and we care about it and we are lamenting with them. Mm. So it's something I've been thinking about for a few weeks. And then I also realize anytime I write about, uh, you know, a cultural event like this, you know, there are some pretty major inherent risk with that. I don't want to alienate people who have some different opinion. And I also was thinking about, you know, what if some, something drastic comes out that shifts the whole, you know, a second camera angle or whatever you, you think about those things. And so I did resist writing for a couple of weeks and I don't know if that was a lack of courage or a show of restraint or maybe both. Hmm. Uh, But I I think it was probably good that I waited and uh, I was, I was asked by uh, somebody who uh, wanted me to write something that their organization could use uh, to send out about it. And so that kind of put me over the edge to go ahead and write about it. So I did that yesterday and, um, you know, it's been fairly positive. Actually it's been overwhelmingly positive. I'm sure there's somebody who's maybe not happy about that, but (laughs) as I wrote it, I kept trying to think about who are the people who could potentially be offended by this Hmm. and I'm not going to write it for them, but I do want to acknowledge they're there. I want to fill it with grace. I want to make sure that I'm writing this not to jab somebody, sure. but I'm writing out of my own weakness and vulnerability. And, and so that, that this can be healthy and helpful, even uh-huh. if you feel challenged by it, that you won't just be angry. And that's the only thing that happens. 
So I kind of balanced all of that through and wrestled through. And then I did ask, I asked a couple of people to read things like this before I hit submit. Oh, smart. And I, and I say, you know, real clearly, Hey, look for stuff that you think is out of line. Um, that is not helpful or is maybe a stretch or is accurate, yeah. you know, all of those kind of things. And so I try to get their, get their honest input on that. So one of the things that you talk about, actually one of my favorite lines from your book is when you're saying, uh, you, you say that we have to ask, what were the concerns of Jesus? He said he came to seek and to save the lost. And when you're locked in a clear kingdom-minded vision, why would you ever engage in foolish controversy and trivial arguments? And um, it, we live in a world like we were just talking about, where it's so easy to have an opinion on everything and and actually have a platform to voice that opinion. You know, um, I'm curious how how do you best, like what's your best practice in, in really trying to sync up with the heart of what Jesus was going after? Like a kingdom minded vision. How do you determine in your own life? Like what's, this is foolish controversy. This is a stupid argument. This is trivial. This is important. This is what Jesus was passionate about. He would have spoke to this situation. How do you, how do you kind of show restraint in certain areas? And then also uh, use those areas where you feel really convicted to ride on and determine that that's actually worthwhile of your time. Right. Yeah. There's a bunch of, there's a bunch of gray area when I'm trying to think that through, but we know Jesus mission statement to come and seek and save the lost. And then the mission statement he gives to us to go and make disciples. So it's pretty crystal clear what we are to be about. Hmm. And so I had somebody ask me, uh, I should, should I not share this on social media because it's true? Like, that's the only filter I'm going to use. Hmm. And I, I'm not so sure about that um, because I think a filter has to be, could I damage my witness? Yeah. Or, or aren't there times where I'm not saying that you should share something that's untrue <laughs> in order to make friends with unbelievers. Sure. Uh, and and I don't, uh, I, I don't want to pretend to tell you how to make all your decisions, but I have to think about, unbelieving friends. Uh, and I have a lot of grace. I actually feel a, like a defense mechanism kick in pretty hard for, for, uh, pastors who especially have maybe a, a larger following mm-hmm. when they get ripped by somebody for saying, how come you didn't speak out against this? Or how come you didn't stand up? How come you didn't make a public statement and defend Chick-fil-A? <laughs> if yeah, you're sure. really a Christian, you should have done that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just picking on Chick-fil-A because they get in the news sure. uh, from both angles at this point. So I, and I remember actually hearing a sermon from a preacher that I realized they were engaged with some lost people relationally who would have been offended if that, if that person would have posted something that was harsh even if it may have been true. Hmm. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, like at some point that, you know, that, that pastor was thinking like, I don't want to burn down all the bridges before I have a chance to share the gospel. I'm just now building these bridges. So I don't need to make some big public statement about Chick-fil-A right now. Uh, There's other people making that statement. And so I was frustrated when, when people like people like them were criticized for not having a, some loud voice about it. So I want to think that, you know, I just think about who are the people I'm engaging with right now. There's times where I have not posted something because, you know, a face came to mind of, man, this, 
this guy I'm playing basketball with on Tuesday evenings. Uh, I know that this is where he is or this is where she is hmm. right now. And if they were, you know, following my social media and I finding these days, a lot of people kind of check out what I'm doing on social media if they're interested in a friendship with me and they, if they know I'm a preacher, they have this hesitancy sure. in that friendship. And so I want to be really careful for those things. I don't want to, I don't want to win some political argument and lose an opportunity to share the gospel with somebody. Uh, I also want to challenge people to seek a just and merciful world. And so that's where those two, it gets into that gray area sometimes. So yeah. pray for discernment there. You know, um, one of the things that you talk about is how in Galatians 5, I think it's 19 through 21-ish, about eight consecutive sins that fall under the category of not getting along. And you mentioned that it seems that unity seems to be really important to God. And I think we all know this, but often we tend to let it get away from us. And so I'm, I'm kind of curious if you can speak into ways that we can kind of keep a monitor on our own hearts and our own minds regarding this matter of, of really fighting for unity over even truth at times. That's kind of, I mean, I don't know if, if you can prioritize, prioritize one or the other, but it seems like Jesus was much more about about unifying teams and bringing people together than having to always get things exactly right by the book, right? Yeah, that's the, that's the thing. I think sometimes churches have been guilty of putting on these blinders, and the only thing they're pursuing is being right. And the, yeah. the, the ironic thing about that is the moment they start doing that, they're wrong. To obey God's commands, <laughs> then there's so much written about unity that if we ignore it, we're not, we're not pursuing the truth. We're not even being right. We're being wrong by always trying to be right. And it, yeah, it struck me because we think about, you know, you tell somebody, yeah. hey, list all the big sins. And people are going to list their things. And, that, and right there in Galatians 5, it's like, well, there's two in a row, three in a row, four, five. And you get to eight consecutive ones of, you know, all of just not getting a, a, along, you know, fits <laughs> of rage and selfish ambition, hatred, discord, jealousy, all of those right there together. Like, man, you know, God cares a lot about this. When you think about it, of course he does, because if the church is not unified and loving one another, then it blows their witness. How can they make disciples when they're fighting? Uh, they can't. And so it, I think it's the same as, you know, a family. Yeah. Uh, a family could have lots of great, you know, bits of knowledge, but if they don't love one another, they're a dysfunctional family, just period. And so I think we really have to pursue that and pursue, that's where yeah. we're just going to say, I'm going to pursue truth and pursue unity at the same time. And if I'm not pursuing unity and love, then I have to realize I'm not even pursuing truth, to be honest. I think it's helpful, man. I mean, I, I was in a conversation the other day with somebody who was, you know, was one of those kind of um, have to be right, not interested in any sort of dialogue, but just, you know, the, the concept was like, if you think Jesus, somebody put a tweet out that was like, if you think Jesus died uh, to save you, uh, it just shows how narcissistic you are. And I was like, well, hang on. No, he said it wasn't God's love for the world that sent Jesus. And I said, well, wait, John 3.16, hang on, for God's so love. <laughs> yeah. Like this this is like 101, right, to me. And and I, uh -huh. and all I did was just comment that, and it was like, uh, you know, I got instantly blocked and 
it's just amazing how like even with your good intent to to be helpful and honest and it seems like there's this some people just have to get it right some people are not okay to engage the conversation or be corrected or or really want you know they 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 actually value sitting behind a computer screen where they don't have to engage face to face and when you're done you block them and they can't talk to you anymore and i almost wonder if that's actually hurting the way that we humans function in relationship with one another if if we're going to look back in 100 years and go man this social experiment was was not good for us you know what i mean yeah i know we uh, my wife and i were talking about how our four kids in the home right now are sick of like zoom meetings and google classroom yeah. and stuff yeah. uh and and they're you know they've been meeting with their youth group online which has you know been great that's been about the best thing because that's been really creative and fun and sure. getting to see some people but th- just the overall online experience they're pretty tired of it and we're like well maybe maybe one blessing from this is that god will save a generation from their addictions to technology by making them just sick of technology <laughs> yeah uh, and uh, i don't think that's really going to happen but you know here's hoping but i think you're right in that that people sitting behind can enjoy that of picking sides and and having arguments in the book i quote a greek scholar by the name of kenny bowles hmm. kind of this legendary professor from ozark christian college and a really brilliant and really fun guy, but he did this word study on heresy. And we always think about heresy being, you know, choosing the wrong side of a doctrinal debate. Sure. But he dives into the, to kind of the thick word study where in, in the days of the new Testament, the Greek word for heresy did not mean choosing the wrong side. It just meant choosing a side. Oh, and wow. so when, when Paul uses that word there, he's saying, quit choosing sides and fighting the other side about it. Uh, but, but actually, you know, it doesn't mean, obviously you read Paul, he cares about pure doctrine, right doctrine. He sure. cares about that a lot, but he also cares about, you know, not drawing lines down the middle and saying you're with me or against me on how we take communion. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's a heresy because you've picked a side that was unneeded. Huh. That's really fascinating. And I guess that lines up well with the words of Jesus, too. I mean, Jesus was, like you said earlier, with the scholars trying to pin him on, on taxes and stuff. I mean, he always found this third way of of addressing the situation, you know? When you think yeah. you're going to get him one direction or the other, it's like, no, he's he's like a cat. He can escape out the third door. <laughs> or he has a, he has a exactly. different way of framing it, which I love that. I mean, that's one of the most attractive, in my opinion, one of the most attractive qualities about him. Because... I had a conversation with a buddy the other day, my buddy William, who's been on the show, just going, it's amazing how how we set up these structures and these tiers of what were most important to Jesus based off his life. And and I think we've made him to be something that even he would have been shocked at, of like, wait, why is, you know, and this comes from a, a conversation I had with somebody else on Twitter who was like, well, you have to understand there's tiers. Number one is salvation. Tier two issues are this and that. Tier three are communion and infant baptism and i'm like we've set up all these structures around him and i i think he would just go guys it's not nearly as complex as you're making it like there's a better way of looking at the situation than than having to be right about either this side or that side republican democrat conservative liberal whatever it might be yeah maybe you're onto a good filter there maybe one of our filters needs to be and if i can't find a third way 
maybe I'm just going to sit this one out. Um, but man, finding that third way yeah. is really hard. Cause I know there's times where I'm, I'm trying to think of like, is there like a third option? Is there a question? And sometimes I got nothing, but Jesus was brilliant at that. Oh, he's so good. You know, the other thing that was fascinating, and we talked about it just briefly a few minutes ago, but um, haven't unpacked it too much, is this concept of like uh, people dwelling in different bunkers, which are typically like ideologies, right? And that there's a fear in leaving the bunker that keeps you safe, the fear of growing and learning new things or maybe seeing things a different way. Uh, And I'm curious, like if in your own personal life, did you have any bunkers that you were locked into and living in uh, that you've been coerced out of and have actually moved out of that bunker. And I'm curious, if so, what what do you think keeps people in bunkers that they're trapped in? And how do you how do you pull people out of that? And how do you force yourself to get out of your own bunkers? Yeah, I I definitely did. I've had some moments in my life. Uh, I don't know that any of them happened immediately. They were gradual, but where sure. I came to acknowledge, wow, I. I am or was in a pretty deep bunker. And the thing about those bunkers, you kind of picture uh, World War One, where somebody is, you're down low. It's kind of gross down there. <laughs> you know, there's mud and disease and sure. uh, all of this. And the only thing that you know about the enemy is what your commanding officer tells you. Uh, I actually read in um, when I went up to the World War World War One Museum up in Kansas City was reading about it. Um, they would switch uh, troops out if they got familiar with the enemy's routine. So if you knew the German army always cooked eggs at 6 a.m. because you could hear their pans rattling around, you could smell the fire. If you got familiar yeah. with the routine, you were less likely to shoot them because you would humanize them. And so they would keep huh. bringing keep switching people out. If they got familiar with the other side, you can't have them there because they may not shoot them. And that just tells us something about human nature of how we have dehumanized the other side to this extent that we don't even look over our bunker to see when they fix their breakfast. We don't want to know anything about them because we want to hate Mm. them and we want them to be so opposed to them. So um, probably the most egregious way I did this in my life uh, was politically. Uh, there's other ways I've done this as well, but certainly when um, uh, I was, you know, 19 years old, you know, I was brilliant <laughs> as we all are. At <laughs> and sure. uh, I was pretty sure that to be a really good Christian was to be a really loyal Republican. And I put those two things together Um, and I said some things that I wish I could take back. I've apologized to some people from a church where I taught some lessons that I Mm. I wish I could take back and had to go back to a few of those people and just say, you know what? I'm sorry (laughs) that, that I would have said that. I I think by God's good grace, he had made most of them just forget because my teaching was probably so (laughs) bad anyway at the time. But, (laughs) um, but, uh, you know, I came to, to realize that I was in this bunker where if you weren't politically aligned with me, then um, I, I viewed you as the enemy and I was surrounded by people and surrounded by reading and literature and media that only reinforced my views, which is exactly what our media does right now. 
to a sure. large extent um, on both sides. Uh, so many, so much of the media just reinforces. And I'm really disheartened by the number of believers who are wonderful, godly people would sacrifice and give anything to you in a heartbeat, who love and care for other people and mm-hmm. yet have bought into a political allegiance that seemingly blinds them to what reality might be around them. And yeah. it ends up with them being causing hurt to others. Yep. And so oh, I see it too, man. It's crazy how, how also, uh, you know, something I've been rattling around in my head recently is how much I actually do value people that come back and go, you know what? Two years ago, I was a real jerk and I've changed some views on this. And, and that the humility to be able to do that actually is re- really warms my heart because it's so different than what I see in a lot of news. When I think of the politics, you know, especially in these election seasons, which are just exhausting, but you see these videos, it's like, well, back in 1991, as as so-and-so was getting a cup of coffee, he said this sentence, and then they're hounding him 30 years later on a sentence he said, rather than going, like, it doesn't seem like there's much grace for people actually changing their minds and going, you know, I've grown. I had somebody come at me the other day going, you know what, Heath, you've really changed in 10 years. You're not the person I knew 10 years ago. And I, and I, they intended that as like a stinger, like, look at you, God's the same yesterday forever. You know, he's, he never changes, but look at you changing. You, you, you moved to the Northwest and you got all liberal and you, and I'm like, no, actually, I think it's a sign of, of beauty and humility to actually go, you know, I used to think this way and I've actually, I've actually come full circle and and here's the way I stand on this topic now. Or 10 years ago, I held this view, but you know, by the grace of God, I've actually changed. And the more I do some uh, have conversations and listen to other people that have different perspective. It, it's actually grown my mind and grown my thinking. And so it's funny how there tends to be a lack of grace and actually, you know, you look like a, like weak if you ever change your position on something. When I think that is actually a sign of strength and humility to come through on the other side going, yeah, I, I have changed. Thank God for that. Yeah. Sometimes one conversation can change how I view the whole world. And I, I mean, I've yeah. had a couple of those in the last decade. Um, you know, I can think of sometimes with a very dear friend of mine who's um, an African-American preacher here in town who has mm. been really gracious and open to me about sharing some of his past hurts. And, I, you know, I've wow. got to spend quite a bit of time with him and uh, what's interesting is he would not have, you know, he's not a complainer. He's uh, he's a hardworking guy, super incredible. And sure. I kind of had to pick his brain a little bit to get to some of that. But then he shared and, you know, we, we he and I were talking last night and I just said, man, thank you so much for answering mm-hmm. my dumb questions and not being offended by my ignorance. <laughs> and yeah. uh, But there's been conversations I've had with him. There's been conversations I've had with our friends, um, Eritrea, I'll explain it because everybody always has to ask. Eritrea is a country that borders Ethiopia, and we yeah. have an Eritrean church community that shares our church building uh, with us and shares in some ministry with us, and we've just become dear, uh-huh. dear friends with them. Uh, but there's been some conversations I've had with them uh, about you know 
issues of immigration and what it's like to be a refugee and just to hear their experience that flipped some of my preconceived notions upside down in a moment. And so then I think the difficulty for me is to still share grace to those who haven't had that conversation yet. And Hmm. so uh, I'm impressed that uh, God keeps showing grace to Peter because we read about his prejudice in scripture that keeps popping up. And so I picture God with this big uh, whiteboard and he's like, I'm going to teach Peter how to love all people and to know that all people can come to me. They don't have to be a Jew first in order to be a follower of mine. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm Jesus is going to teach him this lesson. Jesus is going to show, here's what it's like to sit with the woman at the well. And then Jesus is going to do this. And Jesus is going to smack down the disciples for wanting to bring down fire on the Samaritans and all of these things. And then he still doesn't quite get it. And so, okay, well, I'm going to, mm. I'm going to have him have this uh, incredible experience with Cornelius in the book of Acts. And it seems like, okay, he's got it now. And we get to the book of Galatians and and again, he, caught, he like slips back to his old prejudice. And so Paul confronts them. And, and I'm just, I'm thankful that God has enough grace with us that yeah. even when we have those foolish, stupid thoughts like Peter had, he doesn't just dismiss us. And so while I want to challenge my uh, white brothers and sisters to think about uh, the minority experience and things that that are outside of what they thought or, you know, the, the defensive postures that they may be taking. And I want to keep challenging them. Then at the same time, I want to, I want to challenge my minority brothers and sisters. Um, I know that pain is severe. Would you hang in here with us and let's, let's, let's keep showing love and kindness to this person who doesn't quite get it yet because yeah. God can still do a great work in their life. And I, I think that's the no man's land that we need to be in, especially when it comes to racial reconciliation, because yeah. there's people on both edges that are like, no, I'm done. I'm not, I'm not trying anymore. Yeah. And, uh, and I don't want to ever move to that level of pessimism, even though I understand where it comes from. Yeah. And I appreciate your heart there, Brian, because I've, I've tried to have those conversations and I'll say the thing that you said that is, is so true is just, it's amazing how sometimes a simple conversation or a simple book that you read mm. is like, for me, you know, there's a book that Rob Bell wrote a couple of years ago, and I know people have varying thoughts on him. I, I love him. But he wrote a book called What is the Bible? And for me, that was, it was just like that one pivotal Jenga block that it was like, I read that and then all of a sudden it's like, uh-oh, here comes the tower. And and it was so helpful because it actually forced me to confront some things that I believed for a long time blindly or I just started recognizing that my, you know, my access to data, the way that my narratives in my head have been formed were typically from me consulting with other, you know, young adults that are white and make a decent living and live in the Northwest. And it's Mm -hmm. when you get out of yourself and you start hearing different stories or you start having conversations with people different than you that have a different perspective, it really, it does take that grace of going, I've, it takes that grace of saying, let's let's work on this together for the sake of the world being restored. Because I've also had the conversations with authors on the show, not this show, but another show, uh, 
where we've we've and tried to engage and they've they've had conversations like hey it's not my job to teach you guys how to figure out how to how to understand privilege like that you go figure that out on your own and mm-hmm. and and you go look I, you can absolutely hold that stance but i look at the i look at heaven as kind of this coat of many colors like this seamless coat of color um and that's all of us uniting together uh seamlessly and going no for the sake of the restoration of the world Let's learn from one another. Let's address areas we're wrong. Let's seek to understand. Let's posture our hearts as learners. Let's 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 try to try, try to remove the stigma that we've got it all figured out and that we have, you know, allow your narrative to be warped a little bit. Um, and it's scary at first, but I think it's a beautiful thing ultimately because I've I've grown immensely in being able to to lay down my guard or lay down my pride or whatever you want to call it so that I could seek understanding from people who are quite different from me, which yeah, is the whole pursuit of the show. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, I was going to add, I think one of the challenges that comes up when you leave a bunker, Yeah, I think because I've seen it so many times is when you leave a bunker, sometimes you get shot at, by the people you are in the bunker with. Hmm. And that is really painful because those are your people. And those are the people you've been loyal to and you still love. You don't, you don't despise them at all. Yeah. But you are called to not hate the people in the other bunker. So what happens is sometimes you get out of your own bunker, you're in no Mm -hmm. man's land and the bullets might be coming from both directions, but the ones that hurt the most are from your, from your, behind <laughs> coming yeah. from behind you because those are your people and so what i've seen people do is oftentimes not stay in no man's land but run right across no man's land and jump in the other bunker and start shooting back and i think hmm. you know that's kind of like probably the the thing i think about often is for those who um felt a negative about a church because the church the local church where they were um was maybe uh, overly dogmatic or or some issue that they felt like they needed to distance themselves or uh, that that church was being hateful to a certain group of people, whatever uh, that may have been. And instead of leaving that bunker and being in no man's land, they actually went to a side where then they just kind of lifted up the gun on every church anywhere. Hmm. And, and so that's, that's super painful. Uh, I think if you're trying to be in no man's land to have people, you know, run out of one bunker and then just get into another bunker because then you're still feeling the bullets uh, being yeah. by. But it's very easy to do. And I've thought that through in my own life uh, of how I've handled things and think about things that I don't want. I don't want to, you know, fix one area of my life only to to take animosity or to feel animosity towards the people I used to be with. And so I yeah. think that's a, I'm a constant work. Oh, that's good, man. And I wonder, yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point. And I, you know, I see that like, um, there's strains of people that have gone through like this deconstruction and are just angry at the church. And there's this, yeah. you know, an evangelical movement. And I'm wondering if that's kind of part of it. Is it going like, no, I was hurt because the people that I thought were in my bunker to protect me turned against me when I, when I went into no man's land. And it's kind of like the, the Rene Girard theory of scapegoat kind of, you know, where it's easier to, to unify around an enemy than it is, uh, at times together. And so when somebody leaves the bunker, 
family or not, they're no longer on the same team. They're traitors, and so sh- so free game to shoot at them rather than no love them. Let them you know let them dance in no man's land a little bit. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. Last question for you uh, is how would you because because I, I like to take this sort of stuff and go let's put legs on it and what's it mean for our day to day life so. I'm curious how you would encourage people to move forward, like to how to enter into no man's land, but to dance there rather than to just be constantly dodging cultural landmines. Because I don't think escapism is the key. I don't think it's, hey, just get it right, be on the right side, judgment's coming, and make sure you're not part of the whole burning aspect. But it right. it seems like life's a lot more, like it seems like Jesus was going for a whole lot more than than getting it right or choosing the right side. So I'm curious, how would you encourage people to to dance in no man's land and move forward with this conversation. Yeah. The, the figurative part is keeping that metaphor in mind has been really helpful to me and what that looks like for me to try to stay in no man's land is to realize that I need to one realize my instinct to run towards bunkers. Hmm. And then I need to, uh, fill my mind and heart, with conversations and books and opinions that come from a variety of places. And so I need to have conversations and listen to people. And if I don't understand them, I'll do what my friend Sean Palmer encourages is like, if you don't understand somebody's perspective or point of view, uh, Sean just says, here's what you need to do. Just shut up. And hmm. or first, no, first say, hey, can you tell me more? And then shut up. <laughs> you know, just, oh, you good. just be quiet and, and keep the only thing that you do is just dig in more. So why do you think this way? And that is really, really helpful because there's been I, there's been a couple of times where I've done that, where I never thought about a possibility of thinking a certain way. And then somebody said it and I was like, oh, I totally get huh. you now. Uh, I read about a. um a debate class from Harvard where the the person who speaks first speaks first, then the person who comes up next isn't allowed to present their side of the argument until they first can state the first person's argument in a way that is satisfactory to them. And so sometimes oh, that takes cool. several yeah, it's really cool. It takes several times through until the first person will finally sign off and say, Yep you worded it right. You didn't diminish something. You didn't twist something. You actually said my argument as I said it. And then Mm -hmm. that person can go and then they go and then they present their side of the argument. And the first person stands back up and has to do the same thing. They have to present the other side uh, in a way that the other person can sign off on. And I thought, man, what a beautiful way for us to think about our communication with people of trying to understand them, trying to dig in, trying to listen. Yeah. Them. And so uh, I'm trying to do that in conversations. I certainly think just a really easy, practical thing to do is to pick up books outside of your bubble or comfort zone. Yep. Um, I think is important. I think uh, evaluating your media intake is really important. And yeah. uh, I, I don't think, I do think it's hard to find a ton of great fair and balanced, you know, that really is fair and balanced news. Um, I get that, but I don't think it's as hard as we say to figure out what's going on. I actually think it's just lazy. And I think most of us are, are so often just getting our news from social media sources. 
<laughs> and all of those algorithms know exactly what we want and they keep feeding it to us. And so it's mm. just the same old, same old, same old, same old thing there. So I actually do think, you know, I've got a couple of new sites on my tab that sure. I look at and they come from competing angles or conflicting or different angles. But I try to find ones that aren't way on the edges. I don't want those at all. I want ones that lean yeah. a little right, lean a little left and have some difference of opinion. And I think if you look there, usually you can come to some type of perspective that's close. Yeah. At least. So um, I would, I'd encourage people to do that. But uh, I love that. But conversations that are face-to-face yeah you're absolutely right i actually get a a couple months ago i signed up for this thing called the flip side they have an app but they also have a daily uh email they send out where they'll take yesterday's big topic in politics and they'll say here's here's the way the left views it here's the way the right views it in a in a thesis from each side and then they'll provide links to quotes and articles that back it up so they'll say you know you know they'll say you know, news report out of the White House says this. The left would say, here's a sentence. The right is saying, here's a sentence. And so it really is helpful because then you go, here's the topic. Here's a couple ways of framing it. And that's been really helpful to me. Another thing that a buddy has shared with me is he he follows 100 people on Twitter. 25 are his friends. 25 are from uh, influencers. So not really politics, but more people like Elon Musk, guys that are actually changing the world. Then he follows 25 people he really agrees with and 25 he adamantly disagrees with. And that bucket is constantly changing. But I thought that was helpful too in the sense of going, like, it's probably best for some of us to to follow um, people who don't think like us and have completely different viewpoints and occasionally to respectfully and tactfully engage in some of those conversations with either asking questions. Twitter's really given us a beautiful platform to engage with people that we would never have connected with before where you can view conversations, you can add your input, hear back from them. And so that's been helpful too, is for me to intentionally spend time having dialogue with people that, that, that have such a, so much, so much better perspective. Like we're not having a topic of racism with 30 white guys in a room, you know, like yeah. we used to, I, I've, I've been in those conversations where it's like, all right, pastors, let's talk about racism in the city. And it's like, we are all kind of wealthy white men. You think this is going to, ever be a, a helpful or even considerate conversation like not at all so uh that's yeah, good I think, yeah i think it's i think it's good to go this should be a fight this should be something of importance to people who follow jesus the way that we yeah. handle ourselves, the way we respond the way we disagree the way we challenge the way we listen the way that we posture our hearts to not always have to be the expert but as people who are humble and really want to seek truth and unity and uh I'm grateful for your book, man. I hope you I hope you keep writing on this sort of stuff. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I'm gonna I'm gonna check out the flip side too. I like that idea. I I think I'd seen that ad, but I haven't I haven't done anything with it. So I appreciate hearing about that. Yeah, man. Well hopefully we'll have you back on the show. And I would I would love to and I'm glad for glad for you doing this and it's good talking to you. I mean, even if you would not have yeah. hit record, I would have loved this whole thing. So good talking oh, to you. It's always good talking to you, man. All right, so um, next week, I don't know what we're going to talk about yet. I'm going to line up a guest because uh, I'm just trying to figure this thing out too. Uh, But we're going to have some fun like we always do. Again, Brian Jennings, today's guest. 
Uh, he lives in Tulsa with his wife, Beth, and they've got four kids. He's a pastor at Highland Park Christian Church, um, and his book, Dancing in No Man's Land, Moving with Peace and Truth in a Hostile World, is available anywhere books are sold. And it is a worthwhile read. I've wanted to highlight something on every single page. I keep going back to this, going, I'm losing it, I'm losing it, how do I gain this truth back? Um, And so I'm super thankful for his work. Stay safe, stay healthy out there in this COVID world. It's a weird time, but man, isn't it beautiful being alive. See you next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Heath in Pursuit podcast. We look forward to being back with you next week. For more information on the various works of Heath Hollandsby, please visit heathinpursuit.com.